Hi, welcome back to our uh, little series where I read books and tell you about them. Um, in this series, I'm reading Clearing the Plains, Disease, Politics of Starvation, and the Loss of Indigenous Life. Uh, this week is our third installment, and we're reading Chapter 2. Also, the sound of this episode might be a little different. I'm recording it uh, in a couple different places and a couple different times. All the information should still be in sequence, but if it sounds a little uh, cut and pasted, uh, that's because it is. So with that, let's get on to the chapter. Chapter 2 is titled The Early Fur Trade, Territorial Dislocation and Disease. So it talks about how the early fur trade comes to North America, how that trade disrupts and dislocates uh, indigenous people from their traditional territory and their traditional way of life, and also how it brings the first major smallpox outbreaks to the plains. On the eastern plains, it comes from the French expanding their territory westward, and then on the western plains, western Alberta near the mountains, uh, it comes from the south through a trading network and cultures heavily dependent on uh, the horse obtained from the Spanish. Already on the first page of chapter two, in the, in the first paragraph, we learn that the fur trade also had a negative effect on the game animals uh, in the region where the fur trade was happening. He says, there is no physical or documentary evidence of a widespread and deadly disorder among game animals in the archaeological record. But by the 1760s, HBC employees were reporting game shortages along the North Saskatchewan River. The decline in fur bearers might have been the result of commercial hunting. Archaeological studies on the northern Great Plains have uncovered the influence of the fur trade from as early as the 1670s. So that didn't take very long for there to be uh, an evidence of uh, game depletion due to the fur trade. The HBC was present in the Hudson Bay in like the mid-1600s. And here we, we have it saying that uh, there's archaeological evidence for the influence of the fur trade as early as the 1670s. And then you have game shortages uh, by the 1760s. So that's pretty quick, like 100 years. Further down on page 11, uh, we get the concept of the virgin soil epidemic, or VSE, which is described as the single most significant event of a community's demographic history. A VSE occurs when a pathogen infects a population for the first time, or when enough time has passed since a previous exposure that even the oldest members of the community have not experienced the disease. In either case, no one has acquired immunity from enduring the sickness, and the entire population can be infected. Mortality from initial infections of smallpox has been estimated to be as high as 70% or more, and survivors can be sick and debilitated for long periods. Under these circumstances, food procurement strategies break down, since often there is no one with the physical ability to hunt or collect food. Those with the dubious good fortune of living through the initial sickness can slowly die from hunger. So the VSE, the Virgin Soil Epidemic, is, that's the big deadly uh, disease experience. That's the one that wipes out villages, tribes, whole people groups. Um, the one that is responsible for um, decimating the pre-contact indigenous population that was uh, perhaps as high as 
90 million. That's due to a virgin soil epidemic. Nobody has immunity to the pathogen. Um, so many people die that uh, they can't get food. Food procurement strategies break down. I guess in our terms, you call that uh, the, uh, the supply chain. Uh, you can see effects of the COVID pandemic on our supply chain here. That We don't have as many things in the grocery store. Ships are delayed in ports, that sort of thing. There's a labor shortage. Businesses are having trouble finding people to work. Or conversely, there really isn't a labor shortage. And people are just deciding more and more that uh, working for a lot of these businesses is just not worth it for them anymore uh, under increasingly uh, dire conditions. Anyway, um, it this all contributes to uh, supply chain disruption. And that's uh, this is like a little mini version of uh, what happened to the indigenous people. And you also get a cultural disruption as the uh, elders who are the carriers of the oral traditions and the wisdom that's passed down from generation to generation, uh, though they're more susceptible to smallpox and, and other diseases. And so you lose them more so. And when you lose that many uh, elders and people in general, you your culture is forever changed. Uh, a lot of it's completely lost. On page 12, he says, VSEs might have spread through entire regions before Europeans are present to document the horror. So we'll, we'll never know precisely how bad it, how bad it was. Uh, there's probably uh, oral histories from the descendants of survivors of these events that would give an indication. He writes, the reality of the young and strong, the warriors, hunters, collectors, the childbearers, in addition to political and religious leaders and keepers of tribal knowledge, maintained through oral traditions, perishing in a historical instant in the span of a few weeks or months, surely had a fundamental impact on the social networks, institutions, and collective memories of the entire First Nations. You can imagine what sort of mark that would leave on... Uh, you or your town or your neighborhood, if such a thing were to happen uh, to you, you can, you can imagine what it would have been like for these people. Further down on page 12, we find that uh, diseases from North America didn't make their way back to Europe so much. And the ships that the Europeans tra uh, traveled on um, became like de facto quarantine zones. And the travel time became a lockdown period. On the bottom of t page 12, he writes, despite their catastrophic impact on indigenous communities, the time and distance required for transatlantic travel actually limited the spread of disease to the new world. During sea voyages lasting six weeks or more, infections aboard ship often ran their natural courses and expired before landfall. Also, low population densities in the new colonies, coupled with the short life cycle of pathogens prevented most old world infections, the most dangerous of which was smallpox, from becoming endemic or self-sustaining until the end of the 18th century, 150 years or more after their introduction to the continent. So Europeans did not suffer this, um, the effects of epidemic disease in the same way that the indigenous population had. Things like smallpox or uh, whatever infections people might be bringing back from North America uh, would have been burned out or would have gone through an, a complete cycle by, before the ship uh, arrived back in Europe. It's pretty interesting. At the top of page 13, we have um, 
we have the first mention of the Huron Nation, and they are exchanging furs with Europeans for the first time. So there's the commercial economy is is now taken off. So it sounds like the Hurons are producing corn, squash, beans, and tobacco, and they're producing them for their own consumption and also to trade with the settlers. So they're making a they're producing a surplus of these things as well as trading furs. He also notes that by the 1630s, imported strains of measles, influenza, and smallpox swept through the First Nations adjacent to the French colony, reducing the indigenous population of the region by half. Although close contact with the French colony was economically advantageous to them, uh, they also paid the price uh, health-wise, so they lost half their population due to exposure to old world diseases. And as the Huron population dropped, they weren't able to supply as many furs to the French, so so their rivals, the League of the Iroquois, or the, the Haudenosaunee, they stepped in, they, they took over what the Huron couldn't supply, and that's when they got exposed to smallpox as well. And then they brought infections back out with them. And then as they, as their population gets decimated by smallpox, they're not able to supply the furs to the French, and then the French have to go out and get furs for themselves. That's when you get the first voyageurs, and that is in the spring of 1653, literally people voyaging out from the French colony in search of furs. So within a year of the voyageurs going out, we have, uh, we have the French moving from New France in what is now the province of Quebec, and they're already out west of Lake Michigan within a year. And then after this, we have men known as Cour de Bois, literally woodrunners in English. And these guys uh, were different from voyagers in that they actually wintered in the hinterland. They spent the winter in the Canadian Shield, in the wilderness, plying their trade, collecting their furs directly from the indigenous uh, fur producers. Those are the Cour de Bois. Then we have the Haudenosaunee. They don't like these Cour de Bois, the Voyager, coming out. They're getting furs directly, uh, doing it for themselves. So they mount a resistance. They are defeated by the French in 1666, uh, which cuts short their opposition to the ever-growing trade. And then by 1672, we have an estimated 400 unsanctioned traders. I'm assuming that's Voyager and Cour de Bois operating beyond the colony, a significant number since the total population of the colony at that time was only a few thousand. With this expanding trade, we also have the expanding um, spread of disease. And by 1670, we have a report of smallpox spread to Sault Ste. Marie in what is now Ontario, hundreds of kilometers west of the New France settlements. So it didn't take very long. On the top of page 13, we have the mention of the Nonsuch, the English ship which came to Hudson's Bay, traded for furs, went back to England, kicked off the Hudson's Bay Company. Here in Winnipeg, we have a replica of the ship, the Nonsuch, at the Manitoba Museum, which actually is pretty cool. It looks, it's a full-sized replica 
of the non-such. You can go on it. You can sometimes go down into the hold. You can go into like the crew quarters. There's also a Hudson's Bay Company gallery where they have a replica York boat, which is the type of boat that they use to uh, move cargo from the Red River up to uh, York Factory, up to the Hudson's Bay. And there's a replica of the original London office of the Hudson Bay Company, complete with a giant portrait of Prince Rupert. I want to talk a little bit more about the history of the Hudson's Bay Company, since it still exists today, and it's so important to the history of the region where I live. Um, It was actually founded by two French guys, two French traders, Pierre Esprit Radisson and Medard de Grossier. They were brother-in-laws, actually. They were unsanctioned fur traders operating without a license from the governor of New France. They had a hot tip that the Hudson Bay region was rich in furs. So despite not having a license, they went to scout it out. The hot tip was correct. They got a bunch of furs. They brought them back to Montreal. They were immediately arrested for trading without a license. Isn't it always that way for the small business guy, though? Talk about supporting the spirit of entrepreneurship. So because the French hated uh, free trade so much, we ended up with the Hudson's Bay Company. You gotta wonder how history would be different if they had just let these guys do their thing. So now they have a proof of concept, there are furs in the Hudson's Bay region, Uh, the French don't want to support them, now they gotta get some funding to finance their next expedition, and for that, they booked themselves an appearance on the Colonial Times equivalent of the Shark Tank TV show uh, down in Boston. Uh, Dragon's Den for all you um, CBC watchers. So they're successful. They uh, impress uh, O'Leary and all those other guys so much that uh, they they get their funding. They book another expedition back to the Hudson's Bay. Their first voyage failed in 1663 when their ship ran into pack ice in the Hudson Strait. After this, uh, Boston-based English commissioner Colonel George Cartwright learned of the expedition brought the two to England to uh, raise some more funds. There they met noted child soldier, dandy, and slave trader, uh, Prince Rupert of the Rhine, Duke of Cumberland, cousin to Charles II of England, uh, basically uh, Instagram influencer of the day. Uh, This guy was rich and liked fancy hats a lot. Just the kind of guy that you're going to target if you're a fancy hat entrepreneur, fresh over from Canada, you're looking for a patron, uh, this is your guy. And all you have to do to bribe him to get him in on your expedition here is uh, say that you'll name a third of a continent after him and give him an important sounding job title in your company, something like governor. And uh, he was in fact the first governor of the Hudson's Bay Company. Radisson and De Grossier. They buy two ships, the Eaglet and the Nonsuch, and they head back to Hudson Bay. Uh, The Eaglet is forced to turn back to England, but the Nonsuch continues, uh, eventually arriving at James Bay in 1668. They establish a fort that they call Fort Charles after the king. Eventually, it's renamed Rupert House, and the river where they establish the fort is named Rupert River. You can see where this is going. So they get loaded up with furs there, and the Nonsuch returns to England uh, in October 1669. 
the first cargo resulting from the fur trade in Hudson Bay. Uh, they sold the fur for 1,233 pounds. It was sold to one guy, Thomas Glover, a prominent furrier. Uh, a furrier is someone who deals in furs. This and subsequent purchases by Glover proved the viability of the fur trade in Hudson Bay. After this, uh, the company received a royal charter from King Charles II that incorporated the governor and company of adventurers of England trading into Hudson's Bay uh, on May 2nd, 1670. This is a royal decree, basically, that granted the company a monopoly over the region drained by all rivers and streams flowing into the Hudson's Bay in northern parts of present-day Canada. This area was subsequently named, you guessed it, Rupert's Land. This is a massive swath of territory uh, encompassing about a third of the land that is now Canada and some of the United States. Huge. The Royal Charter doesn't just grant a trade monopoly, it's a de facto government monopoly. So now the brand new Hudson's Bay Company, governed by Prince Rupert, the cousin of King Charles, now rules over a territory a third of the size of present-day Canada. We've all heard about company towns, right? How about a company continent? This is like, what if, say, Amazon wants to set up a distribution warehouse in uh, Winnipeg, and uh, the premier just uh, hands over the keys to Jeff Bezos, personally. And now, instead of living in the province of Manitoba, we live in uh, Jeffland. Pretty neat, hey? And Jeff Bezos just happened to be the cousin of Queen Elizabeth. Something like that. I suppose a more accurate parallel might be Elon Musk, I don't know, getting to control, uh, say if there was a lithium mine in uh, Nunavut or something like that, then... Uh, Tesla could come set up a, a mine, and uh, Elon Musk could personally rule uh, none of it as his own uh, personal fiefdom. Um, yeah, maybe that's a little bit better. Elon Musk actually has ties to Canada and is a bit of a dandy, kind of like Prince Rupert. So yeah, maybe that's a, a better example. And this practice by the British of setting up companies with royal charters um, to go and exploit resources on other continents, this the Hudson's Bay Company wasn't the only company that they're doing this with. They're doing this all over the world. The most important company like this is probably the British East India Company, which was established at roughly the same time, maybe a little earlier, I'm not sure. The Hudson's Bay Company actually invested £10,000 in 1732 in the British East India Company. So they had financial ties as well as probably viewing each other as competitors. But the important idea to keep in mind is that they're just two arms of the same British imperial project. The East India Company eventually came to rule like most of India, uh, exercising military power, assuming administrative functions. Like the East India Company was like fighting battles against and ruling over the inhabitants of India on behalf of the British crown. This is a corporate imperialism. This is an imperialism 101 kind of thing. This is the process by which the British built their world-spanning empire. They're forming joint stock companies by royal charter, then uh, 
going out to places where there's exploitable resources, and then the company assumes uh, military and administrative control over that area and the people that live in that area. They establish control over the valuable exploitable resources in that region, or they use advantageous trade practices to trade with the people in that region. Advantageous to them, the British, uh, not to the inhabitants of that region. They're swindling the indigenous traders, basically. They're offering low-value goods to trade in exchange for the high-value goods that the indigenous traders have. Or they're using their military advantage to set prices at the barrel of a gun. Or they're just outright expropriating territory and handing it over to uh, British subjects to profit from. So those resources and trade goods get vacuumed out of the region back to England, back to the center of the empire. And the center of the empire grows rich, while the region that has the valuable resources and trade goods grows poor. The people within that region grow poor, and then the land grows poor due to over-exploitation. And the British have no problem with over-exploitation because, like the Norse people in Greenland, they're not here to stay. Uh, They're here to make money. And the only way to make money is to uh, dig useful things out of the ground, cut them down, hunt them, and sell them. Uh, Sell them to people who will process them, who will then sell them to people who will use them. And that's what happened in the fur trade here. And that's what happened in India and uh, South Africa, where the British also were. And not just the British. The British weren't the only ones that were doing this. This became like the de facto uh, world imperial system that the rich Western European countries that, that could afford an empire. They were all trying to harness the new economic system, the new mode of production called capitalism, to build a global spending empire. The British just were sort of the first to tinker with it and and perfect it, really. But uh, all the major European countries were trying to do the same thing. This is just a snapshot of colonialism and imperialism in action. This is what it is. And this is how our present-day world gets made and is still in the process of being made. It's the same process, just with brighter colors and fancier tools. You can see some of these patterns, how there is, how these colonial imperial patterns are established right at the beginning of the the history of Canada, and how they continue to this day. And not just in Canada, I should say, but all over the world, how, um, how foreign companies influence indigenous populations uh, in countries all over the world. And this includes Canadian companies in other countries, uh, not just American ones. Uh, It includes Canadian companies as well, especially mining companies. But getting back to the HBC again, um, the HBC, the history of the HBC is just interesting because it still exists. Uh, We still have a big department store here in Winnipeg. We have the company archives here in Winnipeg. Um, It's a major, major part of Winnipeg's history. They still run department stores all over the world. They own Saks Fifth Avenue, and they still run stores in the north. There are still HBC-run stores uh, on reserves in the north, and often that's the only store in town or on the reserve. So they still exercise a monopoly there, and they still 
um, play a major role in the lives of the people that live there, most of whom can't afford to pay the exorbitant prices for fresh fruit and produce and uh, things like that. And that's a major determining factor on the negative health outcomes of people who, uh, who live in those communities. So that's an important part of our history. And I'm, I'm sure it will continue to play a role throughout the rest of the book. So um, that's enough of that. Let's uh, get back to reading through chapter two. And the Hudson's Bay Company, their strategy for trading was different than the French. Um, instead of using Voyageur and Cour de Bois, the English set up forts at the mouths of strategic waterways, and then they waited for the indigenous traders to come to them. In the English, in the Hudson's Bay model, so they're not voyaging out. Indigenous people are coming to them to trade. So uh, disease isn't spreading as, as quickly because um, the Europeans are staying put in their forts. So due to this fort system of the HBC, there's little uh, impact from disease, but the economic impact on indigenous life was huge. And in the first century of this type of fur trade, um, it's known as the middleman trade. Bottom of page 14, Aboriginal groups took on the role of brokers between fur producers thousands of kilometers from the sea and Europeans on the coast. Eventually, some took on regular journeys as long as 3,600 kilometers to exchange furs for trade goods. The Cree and later the Chippewayan Dene pioneered the role, literally taking the modern world system to the interior of Western Canada. They quickly expanded their spheres of influence in the historic period and triggered the first waves of significant population movement in the Western interior. And of course, what he means by the modern world system is the system that we were talking about a few minutes ago in relation to the creation of the Hudson Bay Company and the Western European uh, capitalist imperialism that was just starting to get going around this time. The interesting thing here in this middleman period, I think we get the sense that the indigenous people here were more equal partners in this trade at the time, um, that they were bringing the modern world system to the interior of what is now North America, that they were active, equal participants in the system at this time, and they were also uh, reaping benefits from it. And uh, that would change over time, as we'll find out. On page 15, we learn that the process, that what made the beaver pelt that the indigenous were trading with the Europeans so valuable, it was called the coat or greasy beaver. And these were beaver pelts that had been sewn together to make a coat, hence the term coat, then worn for several years until uh, the guard hairs of the pelt had worn off. So the guard hairs had worn off, and then that left the soft uh, underwool of the pelt, as it says, and that's what you want. That's what you can use to make your fancy hats out of. And there was no process um, in Europe that they had, there was no me mechanical process anyway that they had to remove the guard hairs from these pelts. So the people who are wearing these coat pelts these coat beavers were doing the processing of the pelt simply by wearing them as clothing. Kind of interesting. So these beaver coats with the guard hairs worn off 
these are secondhand clothes. What these uh, indigenous traders are doing is they are selling their secondhand clothes to the Europeans who are taking them back to Europe and then making fancy top hats out of them. To the indigenous, this is like, um, this is found money. They're, they're trading in their, their cast-offs for, uh, for a good return. It's like when you bring your uh, load of, uh, of cast-off clothes over to, out to Valley Village or, thr- or the thrift store or whatever, and instead of giving you like a 10% off uh, coupon, uh, you get to go in and uh, you get like, what do you get in return? I don't know. You get, you just get like money in return. They just actually pay you. So what they're doing is, uh, I guess what the Europeans are doing is some sort of like upcycling situation. Kind of fun. Bottom of page 15, top of page 16, he mentions the low population density in the interior limited trade it also limited the spread of smallpox and the outbreak uh, at Sault Ste. Marie that we mentioned earlier occurred during a gathering of the annual fishery. So again, gathering in large groups, disease spread fast. Being spread out, not seeing a lot of people, disease spread slow. In the next paragraph, he talks more about the middlemen So he says, middlemen quickly developed specialized economic strategies to maximize benefits. Profits could be great, but they were not achieved without significant risks. Trade journeys were long and arduous, some lasting as long as five months. Drowning and death from exposure were common, and almost all middlemen experienced near starvation. Only the strongest men and women undertook the journey to and from the coast. Children, the old and the infirm, remained in the home territory to rely on dependable summer resources, such as the fishery. What's interesting about this description of the middlemen is that it's almost exactly the the same as the description of the ideal capitalist man, the ideal capitalist person, uh, the small independent entrepreneur or businessman, the one who who goes out, who strikes it out, strikes out on their own to take enormous risks in order to reap uh, huge rewards. And that is um, somehow meant to be a, a societal good because the uh, community is made stronger and benefits from all these uh, strong people acting in their own economic benefit. We'll see whether that was beneficial in the long run or not. Uh, the rest of page 16, uh, he's describing how... Um, Indigenous traders periodically suffered from the breakdown of the precarious link between Europe and Hudson Bay. Uh, This ship travel was not super reliable. There were seasons where the English couldn't get back to their forts, and so the indigenous traders would show up and there'd be nobody there to trade with. They'd have nothing to bring back to their uh, communities. So he writes... The consequences of failed trading expeditions could be just as dire for those left at home. The absence of able-bodied men and the strongest women left families without hunters and protectors for months at a time every summer, and the permanent loss of the strongest and most productive adults to disease, starvation, and drowning was an ever-present threat to the stability of communities that took on the role of middlemen. Clearly, those that assumed such risks would not have done so had it not been to their advantage. I would say clearly they would not have done so had they not believed it would be to their advantage. Of course, that's 
the risk that they're taking here. Top of page 17, we have the eventual breakdown of the middleman trade in the mid-17th century. West of Hudson Bay, the advantage gained by proximity of the Cree to English traders and their integration into the trade sparked decades of conflict as they encroached on the land of the Chippewayan Diné in search of furs. Cree middlemen are roaming farther into the Chippewayan Diné territory in search of furs that causes conflict, obviously. Only after the HPC built Fort Prince of Wales at the mouth of the Churchill River in 1717 could the Diné, or Northern Indians as they were known to the traders, acquire firearms in sufficient numbers to break the Cree stranglehold on the interior trade. English build forts, Diné get guns, Diné kill Cree with guns. Diné reestablish control over the furs in their territory. Very interesting to see how the development of this transcontinental uh, trade in furs, this like early, early burgeoning of, of transcontinental capitalism, is already um, dislocating indigenous communities. They're changing their traditional uh, way of living to get in on this commercial trade. They are uh, encroaching on other tribes' territory. The other tribe is upset. They go uh, trade for guns. For the English, they use them to reestablish control. They kill the other tribe. It's interesting seeing how this like logic of trade, of, this, of commercial trade, of, of this burgeoning capitalism is working out and the effect it has on traditional ways of life already like this is 17th century really interesting and remember back to chapter one the beaver is sacred to the plains tribes they intentionally don't hunt it uh the beaver is the key to managing their water resources i don't know if the tribes that are engaging in the fur trade now have the same sort of sacred connection to the beaver it's interesting that when the europeans show up and they want to trade the beaver to bring it back for the fancy hat trade, that this incentivizes some indigenous people to uh, act in ways that go opposite to uh, the sacred traditional teachings and ways of life. And what it also does is then that degrades their environment because they're destroying the animal that ensures they have a consistent water supply. Very interesting how that works. And you can see these types of conflicts in action today as well with uh, indigenous people defending their, their water sources from uh, pipelines now, for example, at uh, places like Standing Rock in South Dakota or Wet'suwet'en in uh, British Columbia, or grassroots resistance against mining companies in South America. And sometimes this grassroots resistance uh, comes in defiance of uh, official tribal leaders who sometimes have made uh, deals with uh, extraction companies. And I wonder if there would have been the same type of uh, grassroots resistance to the fur trade when it arrived 300 years ago. Of course, at the same time that different uh, indigenous people groups are in competition with each other for uh furs to trade with the Europeans, the Europeans are also in competition with each other as well. The French and the English are in competition with each other in the fur trade. 
Um, so the French at, at one point controlled Hudson Bay from 1680 to 1713. In 1713, uh, there was the Treaty of Utrecht, and that ended a quarter century of war between the French and the English. So the indigenous people, like their way of life is really affected by the European, the conflicts at this point uh, as well. So the Treaty of Utrecht happens, um, the Hudson's Bay uh, trading posts go back to the Hudson's Bay Company, the English. Uh, the French reopen the Great Lakes and Ohio Valley to uh, sanctioned commerce. This reestablishment of uh, the inland networks cut into the English trade that depended on the journeys of the middlemen um, to the, uh, the English trading posts. The reinvigorated French activity in the Midwest forced the HBC to look northward for a new supply of furs. And then for that, then we have some diplomacy that needs to happen. So in order for uh, the English to turn like the fur taps uh, back on, get them get them running strongly again, then they need their indigenous trading partners to be at peace with each other as well. So in 1715, we have we have a party being sent out from York Factory to uh, make peace with the Chippewayan. Um, they return with a truce man who leads the expedition Stuart returns home a broken man dying a lunatic in 1719 wonder what happened to that guy in 1727 we have the appointment of of Pierre Gauthier Sir de Laverandre as the commander of the French posts in the western hinterland and so then we have uh, some quick uh, French expansion um, up until then the limit of direct French occupation was the north shore of Lake Superior and then under his command, the route known as the Grand Portage, a 14-kilometer trail around the rapids of the Pigeon River, not far from Lake Superior, was developed, laying the foundation for the Canadian-based fur trade for decades to come. So the French are heading west from Lake Superior. Uh, by 1731, they build Fort Saint-Pierre near the present community of Fort Francis. And then the next year, they pushed west again, and they established a post on the Lake of the Woods. So there, the French were at the Lake of the Woods by 1732. And from there, the traders could reach the Winnipeg River. And of course, the R Winnipeg River flows into Lake Winnipeg, which gives you access to the prairies. This French expansion cuts further into the English uh, business. When only 16 of the usual 60 canoes from Lake Winnipeg arrived at the bay in 1732, Governor McClish wrote that the rest went to the French at the first of the summer, not for their being more kindly used by the French, but entirely out of fear. Fear? Or maybe the French were just, like, closer. Who wants to make the trek all the way up to uh, York Factory, uh, Hudson Bay, when the French are, like, right here, Fort St. Pierre, Lake Winnipeg? Of course, the French arriving in the, uh, the Boundary Waters region that is, uh, like, really northwest Ontario. Uh, like the border between Northwest Ontario and, and Minnesota. I suppose that's why it's called the Boundary Waters. Um, this has a large impact on the regional balance of power, the French trading partners in the region, the Cree, the Monsoni, Anishinaabe, and the Assiniboine. Uh, they got guns. The French gave them guns. And then that gave them a significant uh, advantage over their enemies, the Dakota, and the allies of the Dakota. 
giving certain people groups guns and uh, certain other people groups not giving them guns, that's interference. And the reason is only because they need um, they need furs. They need the trade to flow. The furs must flow. And where else in the present day uh, can you see something similar happening? Where a foreign power comes into a region and destabilizes it, um, arms one people group over the other um, in order to secure control of the valuable resource in that region. Uh, the last hundred years in the Middle East... Um, is an example of this from the end of the First World War, when uh, the British were largely in control, then right up through till the U.S. invasion of Iraq post 9-11, the subsequent civil war, and then on up to the present day. The Israel-Palestine conflict has a lot to do with this idea as well of arming a certain people group over the other in order to ensure, in order to create allies in a region to give you a strategic advantage. Imperialism 101 there. And the Brits are masters of this. Uh, they kind of invented it in the in the modern era, and the, they're just honing their skills here uh, with the fur trade. Uh, the French are moving further into the prairies. They have uh, Fort Rouge on the Red River, Fort Maurepas near the south shore of Lake Winnipeg, and they have Fort Lorraine on the Assiniboine River near the community of Portage La Prairie, Manitoba. Interestingly enough, I live in. The a neighborhood called Fort Rouge here in Winnipeg. Um, not far from where the original Fort Rouge would have been, I assume. This quick French expansion, this is what creates the conditions that spark a virgin soil epidemic of smallpox along the boundary waters and interlakes of Manitoba. Quick French expansion, smallpox right after. So we have the unbending logic of the international economy, the profit motive, um, explicitly determining the health of the people who live in this region. And the source of this first epidemic, this first smallpox ep epidemic here in what is now Manitoba, is traced back to a ship in Boston in 1729. From there, it spread through the English colonies, eventually arriving in Montreal, where it killed 900 people. For the virus to spread across the continent so quickly, it needs speed. It needs people traveling uh, from place to place quickly. And that's what the commercial activity of the fur trade provides. You can see it nowadays with the COVID-19 pandemic, commercial activities driving the spread of the virus. And uh, commercial interests are the most vocally against uh, public health measures like quarantines, uh, lockdowns, and uh, vaccination programs. Uh, trade must continue. Uh, the goods must continue to flow at all costs. This is the only rule. So anyway, the incubation period of smallpox lasts from 9 to 16 days after infection. Those who carry the germ become infectious between 13 and 20 days after inhalation of the virus, and the virus is spread through the exhalation of infected individuals. The total infectious period can last little more than three weeks and terminates with either the patient's recovery or death. But uh, the corpse remains uh, infectious after death. From, its, from the ship carrying the pathogen, from the ship carrying the smallpox arriving in Boston in 1729, uh, to smallpox reaching the Anishinaabe community of Chequamegon on the western shore of Lake Superior, 
It took six years. It arrived in 1735. In 1737, Lavarandre wrote that 60 Barrier Cree from south of Lake Winnipeg died of smallpox. A year later, disease broke out as over a thousand Cree, Monsoni, and Assiniboine fighters prepared for an attack on the Sioux, killing enough of the gathered warriors to undermine the expedition before it began. Because of their preference for essentially urban living, the Assiniboine were particularly at risk. Lavarandre wrote that they were numerous, never staying in any fixed place, but carrying their dwellings with them continually and always camping together to form a village. Because of this, their territory along the Red River and its hinterland shrank. Their villages were decimated. They weren't able to hold the territory that they had occupied for centuries at that point. Before introduced diseases began their decline, the Assiniboine were the most populous and widely dispersed First Nation in Western Canada. Because they lost so many people to smallpox, the Assiniboine uh, had to abandon their territory east of the Red River. The allies of the Assiniboine, the Anishinaabe-speaking Monsoni people, their population was also undermined by this epidemic. And they controlled the territory between Rainy Lake and Lake of the Woods. During the 1730s, as many as a thousand Monsoni died of the smallpox, leaving 500 or 600 survivors. The arrival of smallpox marked the beginning of the end for the Monsoni as a discrete population. Many of the survivors were integrated into other groups. Post-epidemic descriptions of the Monsoni usually mention them in association with other groups. They disappear from the historical record altogether by the end of the 18th century. So it sounds like they've been fully assimilated into other groups. As Assiniboine and Monsoni populations plummeted, other Anishinaabe groups from the east, who had already been exposed uh, and having the immunity from that, moved from east to west, taking over territory that had previously been occupied by these groups that had been decimated by smallpox. Middle of page 21, it's interesting that they mention that these Anishinaabe from the east, they lost their position as middlemen to the French when the French themselves moved into the Western Great Lakes. When the French arrive, they take over. They, do it, they start doing their own middlemen stuff. And I suppose that is, um, that is what happens to all middlemen eventually. You get squeezed out. And I imagine it contributed to the decision to migrate uh, west. Disease undermined the First Nations allied with the French. It also brought havoc to the enemies of these people, the Sioux. Uh, and the Sioux had been fighting for control of the Boundary Waters region since the 1670s when their alliance with the French broke down. So the Sioux are in the mix here and they are, um, they're not allied with the French anymore. They are fighting with the allies of the French in the Boundary Waters area. Reading from the top of page 22, before the epidemic, their pool of an estimated 2,000 warriors was larger than the Cree, Assiniboine, Monsoni, and Anishinaabe alliance. In the aftermath of disease and the realignment of tribal politics that went with it, the Sioux could no longer occupy much of their traditional territory. For at least 30 years after their dislocation, most of northwestern Minnesota remained unoccupied. So this wave of smallpox was just um, just one wave in what he calls a storm of disease that swept across North America in the 1730s. 
um, there were infections spreading from uh, a large annual trade gathering known as the Dakota Rendezvous. This is depicted in pictographic histories of the Dakota, uh, known as winter counts. Uh, and these record the spread of smallpox among them in 1734-1735. There's also an outbreak to the south of that, the Ericara, village-dwelling horticulturalists who lived along the Missouri River began a precipitous demographic decline about this time. The smallpox attacked the Lower Loop and Pawnee of Nebraska, contributing to the abandonment of their homelands. Other nations, including the Cherokee and, and the Kanza, were reduced by as much as half in outbreaks around the 1730s. What is now the American Southwest was also uh, hit by smallpox around that time. In Texas, the Spanish missions at San Antonio were entirely depopulated in the 1730s. 67 deaths reported at the Santa Fe mission during a two-month period in 1737. A year later, the virus hit the Pecos mission, killing 26 infants and young children, but only a single adult. Smallpox was becoming a childhood disease among the Pueblos, a sign of their long experience with it. Top of page 23. Such a dreaded disease being relegated to the status of a mere child killer is a testament to the longevity and stability of the Spanish of the Spanish communities at the fringes of its territory and to the speed of travel along the El Camino Real, the highway between Mexico City and its northern hinterland. So the Pueblo people had had uh, smallpox epidemics before. It reached them um, from Mexico City. They had had contact with Europeans longer through the Spanish. And they were connected to the Spanish Empire, a different different empire. Their period of contact had been longer, and the colony that they were connected to was at Mexico City. So smallpox had spread from Mexico City up to uh, the Pueblos much earlier than smallpox had reached the interior of what is now Canada. Dashik stays in the uh, American Southwest here. Um, he says the... This area was truly at the margins of European control. Beyond them lay the burgeoning territory of Comancheria, the Comanche Empire, a hybrid of indigenous political and economic forces literally built on the back of an old world species, the horse. And to step in and clarify again, the horse was in North America uh, in prehistoric times. It died out around... 15,000 years ago, at the end of the last Ice Age, when it's uh, likely that the first human beings arrived in North America. I don't want to get into land bridge theory here. Um, but around that time, uh, most of the North American megafauna, like the, the woolly mammoth, the giant sloth, uh, animals of that nature... And the horse went extinct here, too. Uh, perhaps human activity had something to do with it. Uh, perhaps not. So humans have been altering their environment for a while. So uh, if human over-exploitation, over-hunting had something to do with the extinction of these animals, it really wouldn't surprise me. What the Spanish were doing when they arrived in North America in the 1500s, they were reintroducing the horse. I have had... Indigenous people personally tell me that uh, they have always had the horse, that the horse was always here, and uh, I don't really want to argue uh, that with them. Um, that's a conversation for uh, a different time, a different podcast perhaps. 
But uh, yeah, the archaeological record seems clear right now. And uh, in the future, if that changes, then so be it. So we have the horse entering the picture for the first time in this book. Horses had been the focus of raids by the Comanche and their Numic-speaking relatives since at least the 1680s, when the overthrow of colonial authorities in New Mexico and the access to equestrian stock started an unprecedented period of indigenous expansion across a vast region of the western United States. Within a generation, the species was being traded along a continuous band of Shoshone-Comanche speakers that stretched from southern Alberta to southern Colorado along the east slope of the Rockies. A century ago, anthropologist Clark Whistler argued that Numic equestrianism created a direct link between the headwaters of the Rio Grande and the Saskatchewan. From their source in the equestrian hearth in the southwest, horses were distributed through a system that quickly and efficiently brought them to the Pacific Northwest, the Plateau, and the Shoshone-controlled Northwestern Plain. By the 1730s, the Snakes, a group that might have included the Shoshone and other Numic speakers, traded horses with the Crow, Nez Perce, Flathead, and Kootenay. Horses revolutionized the indigenous way of life. As historian John Fahey wrote, Journeys that once took weeks now took days, those of days, hours. Caravans with horses might travel 30 miles in one day, mounted men riding hard almost 100. So what Dashik seems to be saying is that that smallpox arrived on the western plains of Canada through this uh, equestrian corridor up from the southwest United States, up through Colorado, following the curve of the Rockies, up into uh, what is now Alberta. Smallpox arrived on the Western Plains, not through contact with the English or the French, but through this uh, equestrian network on the Western Plains. Bottom paragraph of page 23. By the third decade of the 18th century, the speed afforded by equestrianism allowed smallpox to spread along the Numic horse distribution network into the western plains of Canada. Because the territory controlled by the Comanche, Ute, Shoshone, and their allies was under indigenous control and beyond the view of Europeans, we will never have a full understanding of indigenous life in this period, or the impact of the VSE that spread across the western portion of the continent. Oral histories from several First Nations involved in the horse trade in the Plateau region refer to a severe epidemic and territorial changes in its wake. That seems to, to track with uh, what was happening around the rest of the parts of the continent at the time as well. Kootenay tradition maintains that they were driven from the western margins of the plains and into the mountains after their infection with smallpox in the 1730s. Top of page 24, uh, historian Claude Schaefer concludes that within this framework of uncertainty, it seems fairly well established that a group of Kootenay survivors made their way westward from smallpox-decimated camps of the Bison Range in the early decades of the 18th century. Schaefer's interpretation is supported by the persistence among many nations inhabiting the plateau region of bison hunting expeditions far to the east on the margins of the plains and in the territory of their traditional enemy, the Nitsitapi. So, people groups living on the western margins of the plains, they're bison hunters, they contract smallpox, their villages are decimated, they move into the mountains, but they still retain a tradition of bison hunting. So, they're moving uh, from their 
uh, homes in the mountains out back onto the plains for a seasonal bison hunt. And they did this without the apparent uh, material need to do so. They were having their food and material needs met back in their homes in the mountains, but they're still coming out to the plains to hunt the bison. They still had such a historical, traditional, religious connection to the bison that they uh, maintained this bison hunt as something that wasn't necessary for survival. Um, In the same paragraph here, as one 19th century trader wrote, Buffalo is the cause of all their misfortunes. Although their lands abound in plenty of other animals, their hereditary attachment to the buffalo is so unconquerable that it drives them every year to the plains where they come into contact with the Blackfeet. By maintaining their ties with the staple food of the plains, they retained their connection to a homeland lost, at least in part, to disease. In the next paragraph, the same smallpox epidemic is is moving north to the Red Deer River. And this is the northern boundary of the territory held by the Snake people. They were a people originating further south. They are being driven north by um, a long, prolonged drought. He says it's referred to in the scientific literature as a mega drought. Of course, the Snake were moving into territory already occupied by other groups, the Nitsitapi and the Blackfoot. The Blackfoot are pushed as far north as the North Saskatchewan River. In the 1730s, the snake, mounted on horses of Iberian origin, battled along the Red Deer with the Cree and the Nitsitapi, equipped with muskets from England. The northerners had never seen horses, and perhaps the southerners had never seen guns. Kind of an interesting clash of groups armed with differing types of uh, European technology, differing based on what their trading networks were, what role they had within uh, the world economy. The Southerners had horses coming from Spain, and the Northerners, uh, the Cree and Nitsitapi, had had muskets due to their role in the fur trade with England. And both these people groups were going to experience their virgin soil epidemic. Uh, at the bottom of page 24, we have, we have a first-hand account of this experience from a survivor of it. A Blackfoot person named Sauka Mappi uh, told the story to Hudson's Bay explorer and surveyor David Thompson. Um, I'm just going to read the whole thing. Death came over us all and swept more than half of us by the smallpox, of which we knew nothing until it brought death among us. We caught it from the Snake Indians. We attacked the tents but our war whoop instantly stopped. Our eyes were appalled with terror. There was no one to fight with but the dead and the dying, each a mass of corruption. We did not touch them, but left the tents and held a council on what was to be done. We all thought the bad spirit had made himself master of the camp and destroyed them. It was agreed to take some of the best of the tents and any other plunder that was clean and good, and we did, and also took away the few horses they had and returned to our camp. The second day after this, this dreadful disease broke out in our camp and spread from one tent to the other as if the bad spirit carried it. We had no belief that one man could give it to another any more than a wounded man could give his wound to another. We did not suffer so much as those that were near the river, into which they rushed out and died. We had only a little brook, and about one-third of us died, 
but in some of the other camps there were tents in which everyone died. Our hearts were low and dejected, and we shall never be again the same people. To hunt for our families was the sole occupation, and to kill beavers, wolves, and foxes, to trade for our necessities, and we thought of war no more, and perhaps would have made peace with them, the enemy, for they had suffered dreadfully as well as us, and had left all this fine country of the Bow River to us. Uh, I think that is a well-known story. So after this, um, continuing on page 25, it says, For the snakes, the epidemic began their long retreat from the Canadian plains, though conflict persisted until the end of the 18th century. At the bottom of page 25, we have the Cluny site, spelled C-L-U-N-Y, a fortified village on the Bow River, on land now part of the Siksika Reserve. And uh, it's an anomaly. I think it's unique on the plains, or at least in, on the Canadian plains. Um, the identity of the people who built and quickly abandoned it is unknown. Archaeologically, the people who built it are known as the One Gun people. Some scholars believe they were Missouri village dwellers displaced hundreds of miles west from their territory by conflict and disease, while others suggest that the answer to their identity lies to the south rather than to the east. The location of the village is strategic at an important crossing point on the Bow River. What makes it unique is that it has palisades. It has wooden palisades. It has a wooden wall uh, around it and defensive ditches, numerous pits, um, and it was a considerable undertaking, suggesting that its builders intended to remain for some time, but the site was abandoned within months of completion. Archaeologist Richard Forbes dated the site to just after 1730, which is around the time that the smallpox epidemic were sweeping the plains. It lies about a day's ride south of the site of the battle that we just read about, and uh, remains of horses were found at the site, so it was connected to the equestrian network that we also read about in this chapter. Okay, and with that, uh, we've reached page 26, the end of chapter 2. In the last paragraph, uh, Dashik writes, By 1740, disease was the primary factor in the wholesale redistribution of indigenous populations in Western Canada. I would personally keep on asking where the disease, where this disease came from, the methods by which it was contracted, what sort of activities or motivations or incentives there were for people to come in contact with people and places that had this had this disease, had smallpox. How was smallpox being spread to the people on the plains? And uh, I think uh, we'll keep asking these questions and reading more about it. Um, in chapter three, early competition and the extension of trade and disease, 1740 to 1782. We will catch you in a week, a week-ish. These might end up being more like a week-ish rather than uh, a week on the nose. But uh, stay tuned. We'll do chapter three next time. Thanks for listening. Bye-bye.